Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your concierge for this evening, Josh Baker, cover six new to me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features killer catfish, prank death, and unfortunate guests. RN Jesus still has full control of the wheel. So all of these movies were chosen off my big old list of horror movies using a random number generator. Let's dive in, shall we? Number one, Zat, 1971, directed by Don Barton and Arnold Stevens. A mad scientist named Dr. Leopold turns into a sea monster and releases a formula called Zat and walking catfish around a town. Leopold then kills colleagues who doubted him and their families. He then kidnaps a woman and tries to make her into a fish lady, but she dies. A sheriff, his biologist, son, and some agents from an organization called Inpit investigate the murders and other oddities. One of the agents finds Leopold, who gets away. Leopold kidnaps another woman and heads to his lab. The sheriff and biologist show up at the lab before Leopold and tussle with him once he shows up. The sheriff and biologist are mortally wounded. Leopold starts the process of transforming the woman and then heads towards the ocean with canisters of sat. He's shot multiple times by one of the in-pit agents. The in-pit agent succumbs to a snake bite they received earlier. The captive woman doesn't fully transform, but follows Leopold into the ocean. Leopold and the snake are the killers. I didn't even see the snake bite the in-pit agent during my watch. I thought he just died due to Leopold inflicted wounds. Why didn't I see it? The only copy of this movie I could find that wasn't from Mystery Science Theater 3000 was a potato quality version someone uploaded to YouTube after stealing it from TCM.com. Also, if I'm being honest with you listeners, I didn't give that 100% of my attention. I'm sorry, I never planned on actually watching this movie. Like a fool, I didn't remove it from my giant movie list before letting R and Jesus take the wheel. I could actually see Zat being a fun watch with friends. How did I even hear about this movie? It was featured on an old Red Letter Media Half in the Bag episode before they started Best of the Worst. Honestly, y'all should just check out their episode on it. It has high quality clips from the movie. I think I would have given Zat my full attention if I could make out what was going on. Due to the turnaround time of these episodes and my lack of a Blu-ray player, I didn't have time to order this movie and watch it. Not only that, but even if I had time to have it shipped to me, 
and a Blu-ray player. I should probably get one of those. That appears to only be purchasable for about $60. I ain't paying $60 for a movie I've never seen. I don't even know if I'd pay $60 for a movie I absolutely love. Maybe I'd pay $60 for one of my favorites if it included a large quantity of bonus content. For that price, a statue of something from the movie should also be included though. Wait a minute, I just remembered eBay exists. Z-A-T... Hot dog! I could buy that for only $40, not including shipping. What a steal. I'm supposed to talk about the movie, right? Um, Zat is a movie. I can tell you that much. Pros, the Zat costume is one of the most finely crafted monster suits I've ever seen. If I was a liar. It's shoddy and awful, but it's full of charm. It's obvious that Wade Popwell, the man in the monster suit, couldn't see very well in it. One of my favorite parts of the movie is where Monster Leopold walks out of the ocean. Lots of stumbling is involved. Let's talk about all the acting at once. It's bad. That was easy. Surprisingly, the gore is a lot of fun. People are slashed by the monster's claws. Clothes are torn. Flesh is penetrated. Blood is prevalent. It all looks incredibly fake, but I thought the gore would look way worse than it does. It even existing at all is a gift. My favorite kill is during Leopold's first attack as a monster. Leopold flips a boat a family was relaxing in. A woman makes it to shore, but she can't escape Leopold. He lightly slashes her stomach. She instantly dies from this slight abrasion. It's hilarious. Gore, bad acting, one of the cheapest monster suits ever crafted. What else does that have? A very long hippie song that's played in its entirety for no reason? Yep. What about stock footage of underwater creatures? You betcha. Long drawn out shots of the monster walking? Hell yeah. Hmm. Does Dr. Leopold have an emo haircut while in human form? Kinda. I'd say it's more scene than emo though. He was born in the wrong generation. The last and most important thing that is included in Zat are amazingly, uh, horrifically choreographed fight scenes. I recall at least three craptastic fight scenes, well, four if you count the scene where Monster Leopold interrupts a makeout sesh, but Kissy Dude doesn't really fight, he just kinda dies. The second kidnapped girl does throw a bunch of stuff at the monster before being hoisted over his shoulder though. Four incredible fight scenes. Now on to the big question. Do I recommend that? I have no idea. I think a group of friends could have an enjoyable time watching that in decent quality with copious amounts of alcohol. Unfortunately for me, I couldn't get anyone to watch that with me, was sober, and could barely make out what was happening half the time. That's my answer. I know I didn't really give one. My real answer is check out the Red Letter Media Half in the Bag episode that features that. Number two, we are still here. 2015, directed by Ted Geohagen. Sometime after their son Bobby died in a car crash, Anne and Paul move into a new house. Their neighbors, Dave and Kat, come by to tell them about how the Dagmar family lived in the house and were run out of town. Anne feels Bobby's presence in the house. She invites over her psychic friend May, her husband Jacob, and their son Harry. May and Jacob show up first so they go out to eat with Anne and Paul. 
Harry and his girlfriend show up to the house while they're out. Harry is killed by a ghost in the basement. The girlfriend is killed by a ghost after trying to drive away. Everyone thinks the kids didn't make it. May tells Anne the presence isn't Bobby. Dave kills a random girl in a bar, then rallies the town together to go kill everyone in the Dagmar house, since a darkness has to be fed. Jacob gets possessed by Mr. Dagmar and tells everyone the town murdered them and May and Jacob's kids are dead. Mr. Dagmar then kills Jacob. Dave shows up and shoots May dead. The townsfolk and ghosts battle. Anne kills a townie in self-defense. Mr. Dagmar kills Dave. The Dagmar ghosts disappear. Anne goes to the basement. Paul goes to the top of the stairs and sees Bobby in the basement. The townspeople, especially Dave, and the Dagmar ghosts are the killers. I don't really understand why the Dagmars killed Jacob, Harry, and the girlfriend. All the other Dagmar kills can be justified as revenge. It took me days to start watching this movie. I was not in the mood for a slow ghost in a house movie. Luckily, We Are Still Here only ended up being that kind of movie for the first 30 minutes. Then it turns into a hilarious ghost splatstick movie. I did not expect the level of gore that is in We Are Still Here. Ghost limbs went through people, eyes were gouged, heads exploded from a gunshot and ghost hands, a neck spurted blood after being stabbed with four knives, and a torso split open randomly because psychic ghost powers or something. There's a lot of blood in this movie. All of the blood and gore is practical. The ghosts have some CGI added to their crispy burn makeup to make them look like they are still burning. I didn't love We're Still Here, but I heavily enjoyed the kill variation and practical effects. I still don't understand why the Dagmars killed innocent people, but the writing isn't one of the strongest elements. The writer-director also did another movie that was covered a long time ago on this podcast called Mohawk. Do not watch that movie. Back to We Are Still Here. All of the acting is flat and bad. That includes Barbara Crampton. Wait, don't grab your pitchforks yet. I'm not blaming her or the other main actors for the quality of their acting. I'm blaming the terrible script. The dialogue is cliched and forced. The only character that felt genuine was Jacob, who was played by Larry Fessenden, aka knockoff Tim Robbins. One of my favorite parts in the movie is when Paul is lying in bed next to Anne. He wakes up and hears a noise. In the doorway to their bedroom, he sees the spooky, crispy ghosts. He then goes to wake up Anne, turns her over, and lo and behold, she's turned into a cheap, life-size Halloween store zombie decoration. That made me laugh out loud. I had to go back and watch it again. Great gag. It's not supposed to be funny, but it really landed for me. I guess the best word to describe this movie is cheap. It has this cheap feel to it. Sure, I talked about how fun the practical effects in it are, but they still come off as cheap. The acting, due to the horrible dialogue, feels cheap. The other acting that was just rando, no names, that actually were just bad at acting, also made the movie feel cheap. The stock sounds, cheap. Shaky shots, cheap. You get my point. Cheap isn't necessarily bad, even though We Are Still Here feels cheap. I could see its heart. I'm assuming it was a vessel for some insane practical effects work. The script was probably an afterthought. I didn't love or hate We Are Still Here, but a resounding meh from me is obviously not enough to warrant a full recommendation. 
If you are a Barbara Crampton super fan and want to see her perform an awful script, have at it. At least the ghost attacks and gore were a delight. Number three, Satan's Little Helper, 2004, directed by Jeff Lieberman. Dougie, a kid who's obsessed with a video game about being Satan's little helper, wants to find Satan. His sister comes home with a new boyfriend. Dougie meets a masked guy that appears to be Satan. The two hang out, and Satan kills a bunch of people. Dougie realizes Satan has actually been killing people after Satan kills Dougie's dad. Dougie's sister and mom accidentally kill the boyfriend who Satan left dressed in one of his costumes. The family believes they are saved when a policeman shows up, but the policeman is Satan in a new costume. Satan, Dougie's sister, and his mom are the killers. Jay Bauman from Red Letter Media tweeted out some Halloween horror movie recommendations. I trust his taste in horror, so I put all those wrecks on my big ol' list. Originally, I planned on doing a whole Jay Bauman Halloween recommendation episode. I might still do that in the future, but Satan's Little Helper is here on RNG Episode 2. Due to the quality of this movie, I thought it was someone's first feature. Turns out, I was completely wrong. This is the eighth feature-length movie from Jeff Lieberman. I haven't seen any of his other movies. He released Satan's Little Helper after a 10-year hiatus. I'm seeing some parallels with Frank Henenlotter. Made some movies, took a break, and then came back with a low-budget feature. Satan's Little Helper is full of charm, charm, bad acting, fun fake-looking practical effects, and mostly landing humor. Pet warning, Satan uses a cat to write boo on a wall. It's funny and looks completely fake. It reminds me of that old dead baby joke. How many dead babies does it take to paint a wall? Depends on how hard you throw them. Ouch, I just cut myself with that edge. There's a bit of variation with Satan's kills. He dispatches people with knives, Drano spiked punch, tape, and a window. He throws boyfriend's dad through a window. Mostly knives and tape though, now that I actually think about it. He kills numerous cops by wrapping their heads up with box tape. I don't understand how he could logistically do that without other cops shooting him, but logic isn't a thing Satan's little helper cares about. Oh, that game that Dougie plays? He plays it on a sideways Palm Pilot. I had completely forgotten about Palm Pilots. All of the acting is hammy and bad, but that helps elevate the comedic beats. Even with the hammy acting, Satan's Little Helper isn't the funniest movie. It's more put a grin on your face every once in a while than laugh out loud funny. It does scream Halloween, so I completely understand why Jay recommended it. The best character in the entire movie is Satan. He doesn't talk at all. There's a lot of emphatic gesturing. He's just a big goofball in a bad suit who's wearing a crappy mask and gloves. The look for Satan is interesting. I personally didn't find the gray goat man thing to read Satan, but everyone in the movie is like, yep, that's Satan all right. At one point in the movie, sister and boyfriend have a gun. They believe Satan took the mom to a Halloween party. Instead of quickly going to the party to shoot Satan and save the day, they go put on costumes so that they can get close enough to Satan, who knows what they look like, for the gun to be effective. It's a gun. What are you trying to do, boyfriend character? Stab Satan with a gun? The costumes don't even work since sister doesn't cover her shoes. Satan has amazing perception and scopes out the kicks from across a crowded dance floor. That might be because he has a foot fetish. At one point, Satan does take a picture of the mom's knees. Maybe it was supposed to be her feet, but it... Totally looked like he snapped a sweet, sweet knee pick. 
That was probably the weirdest thing in the movie. Well, if I'm not counting all the sexual tension between the family members, the daughter and mom seem seconds away from getting it on multiple times in the movie. Also, Dougie wants to marry his sister. Maybe this weird incest family deserves Satan in their lives. Satan's Little Helper is a fun with friends Halloween watch. Should drinks be paired with a viewing? Definitely. I'll leave you with the only piece of IMDb trivia for this movie. Here it is, verbatim. <clears throat> Director Jeff Lieberman get the idea of Satan Little Helper based on experience he had one birthday. He knew every people present this day, but someone disguised came out and it thrilled out his bones because he didn't know who was that guy. Number 4, Sorority Row, 2009, directed by Stuart Hendler. A group of sorority sisters, Jessica, Cassidy, Ellie, Chugs, Claire, and Megan, play a prank on Megan's cheating boyfriend where they make him think he killed her. He then actually kills her. Everyone but Cassidy agrees not to call the cops. Time passes and people who know the truth about Megan's disappearance start dying. The girls think Megan is back from the dead. Turns out Cassidy's boyfriend Andy is offing everyone since they can't keep Megan's death a secret. Cassidy is obviously not cool with the murder. She saves Ellie and goes to save Megan's sister who also showed up. Everyone else is dead. Ellie escapes, Andy's about to kill Cassidy, when Ellie pops back up and shoots him. Andy then falls down into a burning basement. Sometime later, it's teased that Andy survived. Garrett and Andy are the killers. Why am I not blaming the sorority sisters for Megan's death? They didn't keep an eye on Garrett, which led to her demise. They told him they needed to pierce her lungs so her body wouldn't float, which he totally does with a tire iron. I'm not putting them on the list because Garrett at no point checks for a pulse or breathing. If he would have just checked to see if Megan was alive himself, none of this would have happened. I thought I'd know all the twists and turns in this movie since I covered the OG, The House on Sorority Row, on this podcast in the past. Both movies have a prank lead to an actual death, but in the original, it's the house mother that's killed. Then her son shows up. The motive of the killer in the original makes a lot more sense. You killed my mom, prepare to die. In the reimagining, Andy is the killer because Ellie told him that his girlfriend and their pals killed one of their sorority sisters on accident. Andy kills because he knows Cassidy's partners in crime can't keep their mouths shut. Andy, don't you think killing more people will just cause more problems? You know the age-old phrase, mo bodies, mo problems. I would have preferred it if the killer was revealed to be a random goblin that lived in the well Megan's body was dumped into. Not only does Andy's motive suck, his acting is also awful. He doesn't exude the necessary killer presence, even though soft boy, bad actor Andy is one of the worst revealed killers in horror history, I actually dug everything leading up to the reveal. A lot of what happens in Sorority Road takes place during a big party. Music is always blaring during this party, which is cool for a couple reasons. It drowns out people that are being killed, which makes it more believable that no one hears anything. Quick side note, Chugs shows up to the therapist's place and goes to the bathroom and the bedroom. The bathroom connected to the bedroom. You get it. The therapist is then murdered in the bedroom, and Chugs doesn't hear any of this. That was a little silly. Back to the party music. Another cool thing about the music always playing is that the passing of time is presented by jumping to different songs. When a scene would end with one song playing, 
and another scene would start with a different song playing in the background, I knew a bit of time had passed. I found that really cool. I know music being used to show the progression of time isn't something that's only found in Sorority Row, but I really liked how it was used in this movie. Other things I enjoyed in Sorority Row are the kills. Garrett impelling Megan with a tire iron, Andy forcing a bottle Chugs was chugging down her throat, a modified tire iron being used as an oversized shuriken that's planted in the therapist's face. There are a lot of interesting practical kills. There are also a lot of stabbed with the modified super pointy inspector gadget looking tire iron kills, which aren't as exciting, but they still look solid. After seeing the new and improved tire iron weapon, I knew the killer had to be someone that took shop class. Some of the kills are also shot creatively. A hot tub was turned into a big bubble bath, so part of the backyard is obscured by bubbles. One of the sisters named Claire is pulled backwards into the bubbles by the hot tub power cable that ended up around her ankle. There's a shot of her ankle being yanked, and then there's a shot that follows her as she's pulled into the deadly bubbles. I was really impressed by the cinematography for that kill. You don't see her die, but a flare goes off as she's in the bubbles. You see the light from the flare, then the reveal that Claire ate a flare. Or Andy shot a flare into her mouth. It's a really well done kill from start to finish. Some familiar faces pop up in Sorority Row. Carrie Fisher plays the shotgun wielding house mom. Tawny from Even Stevens plays Chugs. Her real name is Margot Harshman. I grew up watching Even Stevens, so obviously I've had a crush on her since I was a kid. I was disappointed when she died first, after Megan, since her character Chugs is great. She's the drunk of the group, that's why she's called Chugs. She died doing what she loved, chugging. Rumor Willis is also in this, she's Bruce Willis's daughter. She looks exactly like him, her character constantly shrieks whenever anything happens throughout the movie. It's pretty funny. I guess I'll bring up the main actors too. Leah Pipes played Jessica. Yes, her name sounds like a porno pseudonym if you pronounce it Leah Pipes. She's solid, as is Brianna Evigan, who played Cassidy. Jamie Chung didn't impress me as Claire. That's the acting. I recommend checking out Sorority Row. Both the OG and this 2000s version would make a decent double feature since they are different enough. You'll notice all the little nods like the sea pig and bird cane if you watch them back to back. Trust me, that'll make sense with context. One last thing, at one point in the movie, Rumor Willis faints in front of a crowd. This triggers the stock crowd gasp sound effect. You know the one. It's so bad. Do not add that to your movie unless it's for comedic effect. You probably shouldn't even include it in that case. Number 5, April Fool's Day, 2008, directed by the Butcher Brothers. Desiree Cartier plays a prank on a girl named Milan, which ends in Milan accidentally falling over a railing to her death. A roofie was involved. Desiree's brother, Blaine, takes most of the blame. An anonymous person tells Desiree, Blaine, and their friends Torrance, Ryan, Barbie, and Peter that people will start dying until Milan's killer admits what they did. Desiree sees Barbie, Peter, and Ryan die. She ends up tied to a chair next to Blaine. Torrance reveals that she's behind everything and shoots Blaine. Desiree confesses that she roofied Milan. It's then revealed that everyone, besides Milan, is still alive. The gun was filled with blanks. Torrance then shoots Desiree in the head, not realizing an actual bullet was in the gun. Blaine loaded it. Desiree and Torrance are the killers. Why is Torrance a killer? Blaine set her up. Well, you see, folks, 
you should never goof off with a gun, even if it's loaded with blanks. Blanks can and have killed people. An actor named John Eric Hexum died from shooting himself in the temple with a blank. Even if Torrance fired a blank, there was a high chance that Desiree still would have died. April Fool's Day is a remake of a movie with the same name from the 80s. I had the remake on my list of movies like this. April Fool's Day 2008 video. Probably watch the OG first. Both movies were on the list and RNG Jesus decided that I would watch the direct-to-video remake first. From here on out, I'll only be referring to the 2008 version. April Fool's Day is surprisingly enjoyable. I was definitely worried when I saw that it went straight to DVD. All of the acting is absolutely horrendous, like daytime soap opera bad, everyone is hammy. Due to this, April Fool's Day has one of my favorite characters of all time. That character is Peter. Who is Peter? He's just a rich Republican man running for Senate. Everything about Peter is hilarious. He's probably the worst actor in the entire movie. I actually think everyone was acting bad on purpose for comedic effect, which worked most of the time. Let me describe to you my favorite Peter scene. At the party where Milan dies, Peter is incredibly drunk. Well, he's supposed to be drunk, but Samuel Child, who played Peter, is not taking the movie seriously at all. Peter grabs a bottle of liquor, smashes it on the ground, yells, I'm a badass, followed up with a, Nyah! And then he threatens Ryan, who's been filming everything, that if the captured majestic drunkenness ends up on the internet, he will be raped by a wizard. I'm going to try and find a way to post a clip of that eventually. It happened early on in April Fool's Day, and let me know this movie was going to be a masterpiece. Did I also mention that since Peter is running for Senate, he has a bunch of cardboard cutouts of himself giving both a thumbs up and an okay sign. I want one so bad. They look so stupid. How are the fake kills? There's an electrocution, throat slash, drowning, shooting, and Peter is run over by a van off screen. None of the fake kills look especially great, but they are humorous due to how they're shot and the generic score that's played over them. The real kills are a little better. Milan falling over a balcony onto a table looked okay. The best kill is Torrance randomly shooting Desiree in the head. It comes out of nowhere and the effects work for it was solid. April Fool's Day does drag a bit towards the end. It's a shame that Peter fake dies so early since he's the most enjoyable character. The guy who played Ryan is Joe Egender. I'm only bringing him up because he kind of looks like Frankie Muniz. You can do a lot worse than April Fool's Day, but I don't know if it's really worth going out of your way to watch. Hopefully I'll be able to post that Peter clip I talked about since that's the best part of the movie. I will probably check out more stuff from the Butcher Brothers in the future. Number 6. The Happiness of the Katakuris 2001 directed by Takashi Miike A family runs a bed and breakfast. Their first guest commits suicide so they hide the body. Their next guest, a sumo wrestler and his young lady friend, end up dead also after the wrestler has a heart attack while on top of the girl. Their bodies are also buried. A criminal claiming to be a serviceman also ends up dead after succumbing to injuries he sustained falling off a cliff. Also buried. A new guest arrives. The police show up looking for a man that killed his wife. That guest killed his wife. During the arrest, a nearby volcano starts to erupt. After the partial eruption, the family's okay, but grandpa dies of old age. A heart attack, suffocation, a fall, a husband, and time are the killers. So many deaths in a bed and breakfast. More like a dead and breakfast. I'm sorry. 
Fun fact, I've stood feet away from Takashi Miike. He attended Fantastic Fest 15 along with his movie First Love, which I heavily enjoyed and recommend. I didn't try to talk to him because I find it weird to bother people like that. Anyway, I've been meaning to get around to the happiness of the Katakuris for some time. It also had a screening at that same Fantastic Fest. That probably would have been a better environment to see it. There's a lot of things I enjoyed in Katakuris, but the movie just couldn't keep my attention. It's weird. Off the top of my head, I can't think of another movie that had so many fun things in it that wasn't able to pull me in. Katakuris is labeled a musical comedy horror. I don't know if I'd call this a horror movie, and I'm usually fast and loose with that label. I mean, I called Uncut Gems a horror movie. I guess having to deal with all your B&B guests dying is horrific. There is gore from the suicide, the con man is all banged and bruised, the closest thing to an explicit horror sequence is probably when the guests rise from their shallow graves as zombies to dance while the family sings. I did mention this is a musical. The best parts of the movie are definitely the musical numbers. I think my favorite number is the second one, where the family bursts into one of the rooms to find a dead guest number one and break out in song and dance about the situation they found themselves in. During all the songs, there is silly over-the-top choreography. The ridiculous movements hypnotize me and grab my attention. I said that I couldn't get into the movie as a whole, so it's amazing that these song and dance sequences were fun enough to pull me back in for a bit every time they broke out. Not only did the songs excite me, I also loved the stop motion sequences. There are quite a few instances where the characters turn into clay versions of themselves. I wish the entire movie was in this medium, but understand the logistics involved with that. Katakuri's even starts off with a claymation sequence featuring a weird little pixie monster yanking out a woman's uvula and snacking on it before being devoured by a crow that's then munched on by a weird sentient burlap sack monster thing. The weird pixie monsters are only in the first five minutes of the movie. I was kind of disappointed that they weren't in the movie more, since if you search for the movie, the pixie monster is prominently displayed. Besides the amazing claymation, I also adored the zombie makeup. The zombies were blue, banged up, and bloated. They looked unique, and the makeup effects for them were fantastic. There is a lot of strong humor throughout the movie. All of the performances are great. I especially liked Kenji Sawada as the dad. He brought a perfect comedic performance. The Happiness of the Katakuris is a unique and original film. I really want to give it a strong recommendation, but it just didn't enthrall me. I still want to recommend it in some way though, hmm, put this on in the background during a house party. It's an amazing background movie. Number 7, Sabrina 3 the Spoiler Ring. Ing. I completed my first and only watch through of the third season of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. It's still a really dumb show. If you listened to the last episode, you know that Sabrina is still one of the most selfish jerk face characters of all time. So what happens in season 3? Well, since we ended last season, dethroning Satan, the witch's power is fading. Everyone's like, we need a new source of magic since we ain't getting none from Lucy. Multiple different sources of magic are tapped. The first thing they try is angel's blood. Chug the holy blood, boost your spells. Problem is, Dorian Gray ends up draining the blood. Sabrina is supposed to watch him do this, but since Sabrina is enamored with a boy she's known for all of three months, 
She can't wait until the blood is all safely in a jar before running off when she hears something that might be her boyfriend. Dorian chugs most of the blood, so angel blood doesn't work. The witches then decide to try moon power, but pagans show up. Everyone tries to be cool. Sabrina's dumb boyfriend Nick rips up a snake and proudly displays his psychopath deed which makes the pagans, the nature lovers they are, turn against the witches. More crap happens. Sabrina is the queen of hell but her position is challenged by a clay boy, a boy made of clay. So Sabrina and Clay Man go hunting for some unholy relics which are way more boring than they should be. Herod's crown, Pontius Pilate's bowl, and obviously Judas's sack of silver. Sabrina is a dumbass, so she ends up finding most of the items and handing them off to Clayman accidentally. She still ends up the Queen of Hell, and also not because there are now two Sabrinas. It's stupid. Basically, the pagans cause an apocalypse, so Sabrina ends up going back in time to stop it. Yeah, uh... Oh, also that old dude priest is now trying to summon eldritch horrors, so that's neat. Old ones will probably say hello next season. Here are some more random thoughts about the season. Lilith is the queen of hell for all of two seconds. For some reason, she wears one of the tackiest outfits I've ever seen. No wonder no one recognizes your authority. You look whack. For some reason, season three is jam-packed with out-of-place musical numbers. I don't watch Sabrina hoping for some glee action. I hope they cut that out next season. The show also keeps heavily pushing the Sabrina Harvey ship, which I couldn't care less about. I still had fun watching this show because sometimes all I'm looking for is brain-dead garbage television. There are some cool effects like when Hilda turns into a giant spider. Check this out if you've been keeping up with the series. I don't know if I can actually recommend starting it though unless you just want to turn off your brain and watch something. It's far from the best show available. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 64, Killer Catfish, Prank Death, and Unfortunate Guests. I always want to close out the show with That's a Wrap. I might start doing that. You know, mummies. Y'all remember Under Wraps? Remember when the mummy goes to the dance and is sad because he doesn't have someone to dance with? I don't remember that movie being legitimately good, but it would probably make a fun double feature paired with Harry and the Hendersons. Anyways, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not rate Blank is the Killer on iTunes? That would be rad. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. Go listen to Director Showdown or something. I'm not bitter that I didn't get to choose the movie for their listener's choice episode again. Maybe a little. I mean, it's better that I didn't get to choose since I'd be a real ass and make them watch Red Christmas or something. Actually, it probably would have been funnier to choose one of those old, practically softcore pornos from Jesus Franco. Episode 65 will be out on February 23rd. I've decided I'll continue choosing movies randomly off my big old list while still covering things that just came out like Hulu Into the Dark movies and movies in theaters. Till next time, protect your uvulas, and I don't think you need them to survive, but that doesn't mean you should let a pixie creature pull them out and eat them.